Welcome to the Humor in Games podcast, an analog and video games podcast about how humor is experienced, designed, and analyzed in games. We are Scott DeYoung, Mark Lajeunesse, and Andre Zanescu, and we'll be your guides in this six-episode series. Throughout each episode, we'll break down different theories and forms of humor. We'll draw on interviews with designers, critics, and academics as they discuss the different aspects of humor, their own lived experiences, and how their work utilizes humor in games. Welcome to the uh, Humor and Games podcast. Um, joining us today is Dr. Carly Kochurik. Um, would you like to introduce yourself and, and tell listeners a little bit about your research and what you do? Sure. Uh, my name is Carly Kochurik. I am a cultural historian. I focus on video games. Uh, my first book is a history of the arcade in the United States, uh, focused on kind of how arcades intersect with ideas of masculinity at the time. I wrote a second book about the game design work of Brenda Laurel. Um, I have a third book project on Ultima that uh, Matthew Thomas Payne and I have worked on for like a decade that hopefully is forthcoming soon, but we'll see. Um, and then I'm currently working on a history of the Games for Girls movement. This is uh, fantastic, uh, like such a wide variety of work. Uh, I'm curious, how how do you feel uh, that humor intersects with the work that you do, if, if at all? Um, yeah, well, I think, I mean, I think for anyone that teaches, I think humor is absolutely kind of like one of the tools in your set when you're teaching. Um, and it can be a way to soften interactions with students or soften criticism, because sometimes, you know, like, I think if you're trying to help people, you know, learn how to write better, or be more critical, like sometimes asking questions that you know are a little silly can help people get there. Um, it can lighten dealing with sometimes very intense topics in the classroom. And I also find like a lot of uh, you know, marketing and advertising really relies on shifting ideas about what's what's funny, right? And so I think a lot of times we're kind of looking at kind of breaking down um, things that are supposed to be funny and thinking about like, well, who's that funny for? Or like, who's it at the expense of? I mean, definitely if you look at video game advertisements from like the, the early to mid nineties, like they're really, really, really sexist. They're also really, really, really anchored in humor. It's just sexist humor, right? And so being able to think about those and kind of like who are the winners and losers, um, I think is really important. Do you think that uh, games or video games have a kind of spe special handle on how humor works or was it just a, a, a feature of the times in, in the nineties? I think it's fairly specific to games. I'm not saying that you're not seeing similar jokes elsewhere. Like definitely this is something that's widespread um, through pop culture at the time, but the games industry in particular had really, really zoomed in like laser focus on our audience is like tween and teen boys. Right. And so they really weren't interested in anyone else. And so it was fine if your ads were completely alienating everyone else because you had an idea of who you're selling to. And, and you'll see this in the game magazines too. Like there's letters to the editor and stuff where there's back and forth about this. And they're just like, our audience is only this, right? And so it's it's in some ways like the humor actually functions as a filter, right? Like they're actually using it to tell people who this is for. Um, and yeah, games does it, I think in some ways to a greater degree than other areas of pop culture do at the time. Um, I'm curious because you've written extensively about different eras of game culture as well so you, you've written about uh the scandal with death race you've written about uh the arcade culture and obviously you're still working and writing now 
do you feel like humor has shifted or, or changed in these eras of, of different game technologies? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of shift in terms of of who we think games are for, right? So, like, if you look at really early games, like I'm talking like you know the Pong era, like 1972, like through most of the 1970s, um, arcade games are really kind of being marketed as for adults, right? Like they're really intended to be bar games or to go in bowling alleys or other places. So, like, children are playing them, but they're not necessarily the primary consumer. Um, and similarly, if you look at um, you know, console ads from the time, and Michael Newman's written about this a lot, Rayford Gwen has written about this a lot, um, you see these ads of, like, families playing, and, like, they'll have, like, the grandmother playing, and it's, like, a little bit jokey, but not super jokey, right, because the joke is your whole family will want to play this, and you'll all line up in the living room, um, so that's actually kind of a joke about inclusion, right, or about, like, it being for everyone, um, after the, the big crash in, like, 82, 83, that really starts to shift, um, and so the industry like kind of retreats into itself and gets really, really focused on what they see as their core audience. And so they're only selling to certain people. And that means it's fine to alienate everyone else. Right. Um, but there's always been kind of, I think, and I think this has to do with the diversity of the workforce and things like that. I mean, definitely the games industry for a very long time had kind of like a default, um, kind of like heterosexist masculinist humor where it's like, jokes for straight dudes, right? Like, and so you have things like um, Atari's Gotcha that gets called the boob game because they make the controllers like these pink rubber globes. And and then like the ad is a woman in lingerie maybe being chased or maybe they're dancing. It's unclear, right? Um, and so there's things like that where it's like, okay, like I can tell this is like supposed to be fun, but who is it fun for, right? Um, similarly, if you look at the um, the computer space ads, right? Which is the the game that precedes Pong, right? Um, they, they actually have this like the beautiful like fiberglass cabinet is like, and it's being shown off by like a woman in lingerie, um, which is like the same way you sell like boats and cars and stuff to some extent, but like, it's a weird choice, right? But it's also a choice that indicates kind of like who's meant to be consuming this thing or who do they think actually cares about this thing? Um, so you see a lot of that. I mean, obviously like there was just a, a really, um, good, good um, episode of Dakota Ring about, you know, Custer's Revenge and the way that that game is kind of like billed as humor, but it's like not funny. It's actually like super appalling because like the only joke is like about raping indigenous women, which is like horrific, right? Um, and I think the people making it thought it was a joke or like because they don't have to think about how, how other people feel or exist or something, but like it's appalling. But I think if you like uh, more recently, like, I think things are shifting. I think a lot of the early games that are funny are funny because they're, like, Spencer's gift store, like, weird sexist joke funny. Um, and I think we're seeing, like, a bright, a, a broader array of things being made by a broader array of people. And, and that, like, makes makes things more interesting. One place that we do see humor in games that I think we should really pay attention to and be alert to is in trolling, right? Because I think a lot of times you get this kind of like jokey racism or like jokey anti-Semitism and, and like those actually like ironic Nazism is like still Nazism. And we have to be really, really careful about brushing off appalling things um, because they're jokes because they're, that's actually like, just because it's a joke doesn't mean it's not worth taking seriously, right? And and like they've shown this with um, 
groups that participate in like helping de-radicalize people and they've shown like this is a recruitment strategy that you like tell like a racist joke and see how people react and then if they're like willing to laugh at your like kind of kind of not too terrible racist joke you tell a worse racist joke and a worse racist joke and then you just say racist stuff and now you know they're on your team right and so i think it's always worth being alert to those things and shutting those things down because it's not a joke right and this is something that there's a long history of this it's something like start writes about with anti-semitism right that like this is something people do as a deliberate strategy and so we need to take that very very seriously and be very very careful and it's it always like feels awful to engage with this because a like nobody wants to engage with like deeply offensive things like it feels gross and you just kind of want to exit but it's it's also like something we have to pay attention to because it does escalate right um and it's it's something that can kind of seep into the broader culture and become kind of normalized and when it shouldn't be normalized the other problem of course is like people say these offensive things in a jokey way and you're like hey that's not okay that's really offensive and then they like act like you're an idiot for taking them seriously but like you're not an idiot you actually know right like they were serious they're just masking it as a joke so then they can tell you you're the idiot so it, it's it's really messy and i think we see a lot of that around games because games like prioritize play and there's like a lot of sense of, of testing boundaries and kind of like things existing outside the everyday world, but they don't exist outside the everyday world. They're part of the everyday world. And like, we're building it every time we let one of those things go by uncommented upon. To, to your point, um, and I, I was going to ask you, but we, we've like gone into it already, which is fantastic. Do you feel like um, discussions around jokes, right? The idea that it's just a joke um, are sort of dovetailing with discussions about violence or content under the broader umbrella of it's just a game, right? We shouldn't be taking these things seriously because they're part of leisure and they're not part of, quote, the serious world or the real world. Yeah, I think we get that a lot, right? And and it's, I think there's a lot of nuance to these discussions because I, as someone that's written a lot about, about violent games and about kind of like discourse around violent games, there's there's very little to no evidence that violent games cause some kind of like one-to-one -one real world violence, right? Like that's just, that's not happening. Um, and I think when we knee jerk default to that and then have to defend that, we're actually like, it's unhelpful, right? Like it's an unhelpful discourse. It's not engaging with anything seriously. And it puts us on the defensive about a medium that like probably doesn't need defending, right? Like the games industry makes billions and billions of dollars. Like most people play video games, like, I'm not sure what what the risk is there, and I also worry about how much um, how much. I, I just published an article about this. I worry how much that discourse actually leaks over into um, kind of myths of white innocence that uphold white supremacy, where like we start talking about game violence at the moment that there's a mass shooting perpetuated by a white man, right? Like um, as if there has to be some external corrupting influence that like made that person engage in this horrific thing, but like. I don't know, right? Like, if it's never going to be one thing. If it is an external influence, it's going to be something more complicated. And, and games are part of that, right? Like, they're part of this complex social web that we're all in. I do think that tendency to say, like, oh, it's just a game or, oh, I'm just playing, like, you know, it's still, you're still causing real harm. And and we talk about a lot about this with, with sports. I think it's somewhere this is really obvious, right? So if you play, like, contact sports, if you played rugby, like, I played rugby and I, I love playing rugby. I miss playing rugby. Um, 
And in the game, there are things you can do that are like completely unacceptable outside of that, right? Like you can't just like tackle someone on the street. Like that's that's assault, right? But like in the game, it's part of the game. But if you blow your knee out in the game, your knee is still blown out when you walk off the field, even though like that happened in the game and circumstances in which like it was okay, quote unquote. So I think like we have to think about these things in like a pretty nuanced, careful way. And I I think as someone that really values games and takes them very seriously, dismissing something is just a game is like totally unhelpful. And I think actually, if we think humor is valuable and important as a cultural form, we can't dismiss it as just a joke either. We actually need to take these things quite seriously. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, do you feel like uh, discourses around uh, these kinds of like, uh, you know, humorous, but not actually humorous behaviors like trolling or, uh, you know, toxic behaviors. Um, do you find that these map onto games differently than they do in the context of sports? Because you mentioned um, having a, a background uh, in um, rugby. I mean, I think I think one thing in sports that's really important is you actually have like pretty close regulation in sports that you just absolutely don't have in games, right? Like, um, if I'm if you go to a baseball game or you go to like a tennis match or whatever, there's like the players on the field and then there's like all the support staff that are letting that game happen, right? You've got like coaches and referees and like trainers and like all these other people around that that are like not in the game who are kind of monitoring what's happening and that there can be consequences for bad behavior, right? Whereas I think with a lot of um a lot of video games and computer games, like we haven't really perfected that. Like companies do a really poor job of moderating if they do it at all they kind of want to not be involved but like part of why sports looks different is that it's the structure is quite different right um there's there's a lot less anonymity and i don't think anonymity causes bad behavior but i think um it means things follow you right so if if like i blow up at someone and i'm using my like very easily identifiable gamer handle that's always me that's actually like that anonymity there it's like i'm not anonymous right like i'm still trackable even if they don't know that's carly historic they still know it's that handle um and so i think it's really this kind of like lack of accountability and this idea that you can kind of like slip away unseen and then come back um is really troubling and, we, and i've been seeing that happen a lot um like with streaming where people are streaming and they're getting harassed and the person just keeps making new accounts um, because there's no way to prevent them from doing that. And it's like the anonymity is not causing the problem. Like that person can be anonymous, but the problem is there's no accountability. Like there's no way to be like, no, you can't have another account because you're being a jerk. No, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. And there's this fascinating boundary between we have these discourses around games being not serious, but evidently they're now uh, really active, important, meaningful social spaces. Um, and sports have that. And there's like we could map one onto the other a bit more if but I don't think we're we're there yet necessarily. On in in a different vein, I'm actually curious. Um you've written some work also about uh Taylorism and sort of um gamification logics. I'm curious, do you find that uh humor in games is also sort of a this mechanism of orienting play or orienting game experience that's productive in in like the the industrial sense or you know that's a that's a good question i find often like the games that are being used in that way i've written about right in this very kind of like training games kind of way are often like really humorless right like there's like zero room for laughter in those um and sometimes it's because they're training you about something like really horrible right like they're giving you a title nine training in this kind of like lightly gamified uh interface um 
and like nobody wants to make jokes about that because it's horrible I, I hope nobody wants to make jokes about let's say that um but I, I do think like and, and I think there's actually a specific tone a humor tone that I associate with training that's like I'm sure everyone has encountered at some point where they're like remember kids right like it's this really kind of like cheesy ebullient like you know it's like almost like it feels like it's going to tell you a dad joke right um and I I think like you get some of that but I don't necessarily think it's productive right I think sometimes it's it's window dressing like it's like a costume like we're like we're fun we're trying to make it look fun and I think like even calling some of these games is the equivalent some of these things games is the equivalent of that we're like they're not actually games right like there's like nothing like playful or joyful or voluntary about this experience so like if it's if you can't walk away is it ever actually a game no that's super interesting and it brings up issues too concerning like edutainment or like these are you know we're gonna include game mechanisms or fun mechanisms uh for other purposes do, do you find that like humor in edutainment games is even actually humor or is it part of that window I dressing think, i think sometimes they nail it right like I, I think about um if you go like the carmen san diego franchise i think actually does so good where it has all these like i love all the little villains or like little silly cartoon dudes and like it's super fun and like i think that's a game that people genuinely enjoy playing right like that's a a franchise that's been rebooted in a really creative way. I actually had my students play, um, there's an interactive adventure on Netflix that's a Carmen Sandiego under the new one where she like helps, you know, repatriate art and stuff like this, which is super cool. And the students did really badly at it. And then I took a pic, a screenshot from that and made it like the icon for the class discord. And they're like, did you just, did you just put the game we failed, like that we have to look at it every time we do this? I'm like, yeah. And, you know, I'm like kind of messing with them a little, but it's also like funny that we as a class played this game made for children and just like failed abysmally, right? Like, um, and so I think like humor is great when you're like softening how something feels. Like I don't want, you're not gonna learn if you're like angry and frustrated about your encounter with this thing. But if it's like a little silly and the stakes are like clearly kind of like a little squishy, like they're not, you're not gonna like, you don't like there's no permadeath in Carmen San Diego, right? Like you can just start playing again. It's fun. Um, I think that's like, you know, humor again, like it can be a way to soften these things or like make clear that the stakes aren't overly high. It can also help you like make clear that you're not taking it too seriously or like that the game itself knows that you're kind of um, setting up a silly scenario. It's like, yeah, this is totally artificial. That doesn't make it like unfun. Um, and like, maybe you'll learn some stuff, but you know, maybe not. It's fine either way. And so, yeah, I, I think there's room for humor in these. I think it needs to be smart. I think a lot of times things that are edutainment are unfunny or un or like unplayable because like they don't take children seriously. Like they're just like, it's for kids. Let's make it crappy. And like kids are actually very sophisticated consumers in some ways. And I think deserve to be respected as such. Given uh, this idea about stakes, right, about things mattering. So like maybe things might be funny. Uh, if we don't perceive them as serious or, or they don't seem serious to us. Do you think that, uh, you know, in, in the case of older games and especially the moral panics that surrounded them, like like Death Race, that there was like a misalignment of stakes where people playing these felt like the games were one thing, but people who were legislating saw them completely differently? Yeah, I mean, I think also Death Race is such an interesting um, example. And it, it, part of why I wrote about it is it's like so context dependent, right? Like making sense of that requires so much of the context where it's like, look, you can't really talk about the Death Race game without talking about Death Race 2000, the movie, which is like hilarious, speaking of humor, right? Like it's this like dystopic 
future of the United States that seems like closer every day. And it's like really cartoonish and over the top. And there's like all this amazing costuming and stuff. And so it's really hard to make sense of that game without being aware of that film. And like, you can't really make sense of that film without talking about like the demise of the Hayes Code and like the loosening up of media production regulation in the United States. And like, the whole circuit of like midnight theaters and drive-ins that's existent, right? So it, it really only fits there. And similarly, like if you talk about Night Trap, like Night Trap only makes sense if you understand 1970s and 80s slasher films that were marketed to teenagers because it's using, right? Like it's using all the genre tropes of those. And so of course, if you take it out of that genre, it like seems really different, but it also actually doesn't make sense outside of that genre. Um, and I, I think a lot of times, like a lot of these reactions, it's 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 not necessarily that the stakes are incorrect, it's that the context has been removed. And so the thing no longer makes sense, right? Um, and, and that's, I think so much of the work I do as a historian is really trying to reassemble that context and figure out like, what is this responding to? What is this moving towards? Like, what are the stakes for all these different parties? I think it's really easy to look at look at people that are protesting games and be like, that's ridiculous. They don't understand. But like, maybe they do understand, right? Like, and we're actually engaged in like a pretty, pretty complex negotiation about cultural values. And and yeah, like, is, is a coin-op arcade game like kind of a stupid place for that to be happening? I guess. But like, is it also something that presents a serious cultural change like also yes right so i don't think the people reacting on either side are ignorant of what's happening i think they might be misinterpreting but i actually think we get a much better sense of things if we take everyone seriously there no that absolutely makes sense so it's more of, of an issue of effectively we're having different discussions or we're we're in different contexts or like the yeah, accessing the context we're working from different assumptions right so like the people worried about death race are assuming children are playing this on their way to school right? Or on their way home from school, or maybe they're skipping class and spending their lunch money to play this game. And it's like, kind of violent. And that doesn't seem like what kids should be doing instead of these other more wholesome things. And like, the developers are probably not assuming that a seven year old is playing it, right? Like, I, I can almost guarantee if you're like, who's this game for, they would not be like seven year olds. Um, and so I think sometimes they're actually just like having totally separate conversations, because in some ways, they're having discussions about a totally different experience. And both of those can exist at the same time and neither of them is wrong. But like, if they don't actually try and understand where the other party's coming from, they're never going to actually make sense of each other. I mean, maybe to, to shift also to considering these in a, like in a positive light, do you find that humor um, in like the nineties or two thousands, I'm, I'm thinking um, in communities that were often marginalized in game spaces. So women, people of color, queer folks, do you feel like, humor might have been sort of a, a bonding agent, right? Like inside jokes and all these like hidden spaces that were- a bit Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's so much room for, for joking, but I also think joking can become this kind of like gatekeeping thing. So it's like a bond, but it's also a filter. Um, and I think sometimes that's like for better or worse, right? Like, and I, um, I was like a college radio DJ and was very, very into music. And I used to like review records and stuff. And I remember this like guy trying to like, talk down to me about music and he was just like oh have you heard of such and such and it'd be like you know some random band and I'm like yeah or, or no or whatever and he would always react and so I started making up bands like I was like oh have you heard of this and he's like yeah and I'm like no you haven't because I made it up like I, I was so annoyed um and like 
but it, I mean, it was the same thing he was doing, right? Like, I don't need to know like every random thing that ever happened in the history of music to like care about music or to know something about music or to have opinions about music. And I, I think um, we see that in our own games too. It's like, oh, you haven't played like all 743 hours. Like, how dare you have an opinion? And it's like, well, I didn't like the 600 hours I played, so I'm good, right? Like, or like, I don't actually care about that kind of game at all. And there's tons of games that I'm just like, you know, I don't really like playing first person shooters. Like I personally find them boring. Does that mean they're bad or people shouldn't play them? Like, no, right. It just, I don't care. And I, I think like it really, everyone deserves to be able to not care about certain things, but still be engaged with a hobby or in a medium. And it's like, I'm sure there's lots of people that don't care about the Sims at all, but I think the Sims is awesome. Right. And you're allowed to care or not care about different parts of things. Like there's no way anybody alive has played every single video game that like they should or could care about. Um, but that doesn't mean like that they're not having valid experiences with the medium or that the, like their experience with games is not important to them. Absolutely. Uh, I, Yes, <laughs> we we we're starting to run into this uh, in like there's just too many games coming out that we can't like possibly contend with. So it's like you, you got to pick what you can play and yeah. I mean Robert Crisco, who's at the he was the like the music critic at the Village Voice for years and years, right? Like I remember reading this piece he'd written and it actually quantified how much new music was coming out every day. And he's like, nobody can listen to all the new music. It's literally impossible, right? Like and that's amazing. It's amazing that that much stuff is coming out and that, like there's so much creative work being done and that like we live in this age of plenty in terms of like arts and media experiences but it also means like insisting people have like a shared like body of experiences like is maybe a little unfair and really says a lot about trying to enforce certain values and limit certain things whereas like you could have someone that spends hours and hours and hours playing games and someone else that plays our games for hours and hours and hours and they have zero overlap right and that's interesting and so i mean i'm hoping we're seeing like a more granular kind of culture right like where people can actually like find the things they're interested in we're not just having like monolith like gamer culture where you can only engage this way i hope like i hope people that really love match three games can find like a happy community of match three players that like where they can talk strategy and like figure out which games have better narratives and like which ones have terrible cutscenes. like that's awesome like i want people to have space to play and enjoy in a way that adds value to their lives like whatever that is wanted to ask you um do you have a personal experience uh, that you find really funny with a game that you'd like to share, like a, a funny moment or a funny game or something funny oh, that man. happened? Well, I think my favorite. So I, I'm um, I'm part of a group called the Learning Games Initiative, and we usually get together at the regional um, Southwest uh, PCA ACA conference. And um, we're all old now, so now we like go to bed and stuff. But uh, we didn't used to, right? So everybody set up gaming, and we'd come up with like people would come up with these different things, and I missed. I was not there for this, but I think about it all the time and I laugh all the time. So there's people in that group that were like, could have been comp competitive esports players, right? Like they're really, really skilled. They're really, really competitive. And then you have people that are like, not like that, right? Like you have people that are me like me, where I'm like really into like certain kinds of puzzle games. And I really like, you know, like the narrative part of games and the exploring part of games. Um, and so like just wildly different things, but like people bring these games like, oh, we're all gonna play this. And apparently one year someone brought a race game and they decided that instead of getting knocked out when you lost, you got knocked out when you won. Because the if you always get knocked out when you lose, you never get better. But they wanted people to be able to play, you know, more. And um, Kevin Moberly is a co colleague of mine, apparently was like not good at this game. So Kevin's playing the game and, and he keeps losing and losing and losing. So he's been playing for like hours. And they're like, Kevin, 
you can quit. And he's like, no. Right. And so I always think of just like Kevin playing this game for like, you know, eight or 10 hours or something because like he will not quit because he's like, no, I, I, I think I've got right. And I, I kind of love like, I don't know. I mean, it's just like a funny image of like everyone in this conference room or whatever, like being like, Kevin, you can quit, you know, um, but also just like the, the this huge array of skills. And also like there's some real pleasure I find in playing games as an adult because my sense of the stakes, I think, is like a little kinder to myself where I'm just like, yeah, I don't care if I'm bad at this. It like has zero impact on my life. I'm never going to be good at driving in games. I'm fine at driving in reality. I, I don't know what this is. I don't get it. Right. Like and and it lets me kind of like there's so so much joy in being bad at things. Like I love being bad at things because the stakes become like zero where it's like, yeah, I'm not good at it. Who cares? Right. And 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 that's actually something I always tell my students I really want for them is like the joy of being bad at things and the joy of failure and having no like it doesn't cost you. It doesn't cost you to be bad at things sometimes. And I I think that's something games can give us that like when the stakes are high everywhere else, it's really, really fun to play a game and be terrible at it. Here, here's to being bad at games and yeah. taking pleasure in that. Thank you so much for uh, agreeing to talk to us and giving this interview. It's been fantastic having you. Um, is there anything you'd like to plug or to uh, shine a spotlight on before we, we break? Um, sure. I mean, totally, actually pretty unrelated to my, uh, my historical work. I also uh, design games and I, my former student, Mike Deanda, and I actually just made a game um, called Golden Mart and we funded it on Kickstarter. And it's a single player RPG about working, um, working uh, customer service during the apocalypse. So um, there's a free version that you can get on, on itch or um, we'll have like a full version of it out in a couple months. So that's been my current project that I'm excited about.